Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 119 of Yogaland. Today we are going, we're backtracking a little bit. I've got Jason here with me. Hi, Jason. Hello. And we are going to go back to the questions that we recorded live at Love Story Yoga in July that where the audio just went kablooey. It was just a really weird situation. Yeah, these so these were questions that came in via a follow-up to the summer series that we did. And we recorded this Q&A during my training, the third module, mm -hmm. which was awesome. And then you informed me shortly thereafter we had no record of it. It was so, no, we have a record. It's just, oh. and the funny thing is, you know how I always say, okay, let me check the sound first. Yeah. And we do a little test. And then I just, and once the test is done, we go. I did that and the test was fine. Uh -huh. I remember doing it. And then when you listen to it, it just sounds like there's a helicopter, like, hmm. like our audience must be thrilled with this deep excavation. Of, of what of what happened? It? Oh, okay. Of what happened, but it was a great training and it was really fun to do. And it's really nice to have you become more and more incorporated in these trainings. When you're able to make it, you're really offering some great stuff, and people like you. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh darn it, people like you. Yeah, thank you. I know. I, know. I say that. I like you too, but I think that's been established. <laughs> So we are going to be airing this in a few weeks from today from when yeah. we're recording it. And you're going to be like, I've been saying in the beginning of the episodes, like Jason's starting his world yeah, tour again. It gets busy. It's happening. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I am in total, like I, I operate now mostly on complete denial. I have not even thought about my September schedule. Like it's not in my head at all. Wow. But I know that that's when it starts to it starts to flare up, and I know that I am going places and September, doing things that I, I look just forward so to. So envious because you're going to Copenhagen, yeah, to London Belfast. and Belfast. Oh my god, I'm pretty excited about it. Someday, and everything is full in those places, which I'm really excited about. Ooh, it's been fun. full for a while, so yeah. yeah, I really look forward to that. And, and um, then I'm also envious of your Asia trip because we went to Hong Kong together many years ago many years ago i went first i got i was so fortunate in that my editor-in-chief at the time approached me one day and said hey i just learned that there's going to be a yoga conference in hong kong and john abbott who was at that time the owner of yoga journal is is going would you would you like to go too and i was like yeah, yeah sign me up for that and it was so exciting and so fun and i went with renee LaRose and we shared a hotel room and it was Oh my gosh, so much fun. And I came back and I said, you have to go. Do you know how many years I have taught and how many times I have taught in Hong Kong? No. Do you want to guess? 10. Wow. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot. Oh my I've taught gosh. HGO conference 10 times. Wow. And pure. So my I'm doing my 300 hour training there, which I'm really, really, really excited about. And you know, most of the people that are coming are from that side of the world. You know, people yeah. from Malaysia and Thailand and Hong Kong. Or mainland and China. Mainland China, New Zealand, Australia so far. But just a shout out that anyone that just wants to come from some other part of the world and have this really amazing opportunity, like the yoga studio overlooks Hong Kong Harbor. You know what I mean? Like, so cool. I will it is say without though, a I doubt the though, most dramatic. Yeah location of any studio I've ever taught in. Yeah. If you want to go from some other place in the world, do it. 
if you like to be in urban settings because it's just yeah yeah it's yeah, just very enough. very i mean i love it like i'm total urban the studio traveler. itself though the studio is so nice oh, the studio nice. is quiet oh nice it's super quiet but yeah it's it's in kowloon it's uh it's yeah oh i don't think i realized it was in kowloon. it's in the peninsula towers oh okay well that's a little quieter than what i was thinking of last time not I was there. really okay. okay not really well, no. anyway, it's a yeah. fabulous place. Yeah. Anyways. You're going to have a great time. Me too. And someday we'll take it. our daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Someday. I think within the next couple of years. You think so? I hope so. I hope so too. I hope yeah. she's ready. She's now talking about getting excited about traveling places Last with you. night, she counted on her hands how many places she's been. Really? Yeah. She wow. was really excited about she's it. She's been to a lot of places. Yeah, she's been to a lot of did places. Did you guys remember all of them? Like, did you remember Seattle and Portland? And- I didn't remember Seattle. When we went to see Catherine Winter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Hi, Catherine Winter. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Let's get okay. on with the questions. All right. Okay. 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 So- I got, I got some taxes to pay. Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> Okay, so our first question comes from Ruby. Hi, Ruby. She says, hi, Jason and Andrea. I just finished my 350-hour training, and I'm struggling to come up with creative sequencing. Do you have any tips on sequencing a class for beginners, such as a an online class outline? I literally, you know what I feel like? I feel like Ruby is not a real person. That I made her up? I feel like <laughs> our marketing department, which consists of you and me, we're like, we're like, let's, let's create, let's, <laughs> a perfect let, question. yeah, let's, let's start to design some fraudulent questions <laughs> to, to move units. <laughs> no, because then she says, thank you and love your show. It really is an educational joy to listen to you both. Uh-huh. And Andrea, you are an amazing interviewer. Oh, this is really sounding <laughs> like a fraudulent, a fraudulent setup. <laughs> no, it is sort of like the perfect question. Do you have any tips on sequencing? Oh, oh yes, well, let I me do. think about this. <laughs> Do I have products to sell? Let me think about this. <laughs> do I have a whole course online that you can yeah, take? Yeah, like well, a, yes. a child that likes blueberries. So a couple things on this. The first thing that I want to say is I want to stick my foot right in it. And I want to say, do not focus on creative sequencing. Focus on effective sequencing. Okay, this is different. I think that one of the biggest sources of burnout, one of the things that I teach often, I teach these three-day return to your center teacher training programs for people who have been teaching for a while and just are pretty much burned out, right? Which is everyone. And one of the main things that I focus on is reformulating our approach to sequencing so that we aren't focusing first and foremost on being creative slash different from class to class or week to week, because this is going to burn you out and it is not going to educate or retain your students. Like this is one of the biggest myths and one of the biggest mistakes that people can possibly make. So I, I there, there is some creative element to sequencing, but it shouldn't be first, okay? You wanna really first think about number one, what are you trying to teach? And number two, how long do you think it's gonna to take to actually teach that thing? And then build a basic syllabus. And I have some tools and some other tools that are come out, gonna come out to help with this. And this is something I teach a ton in my trainings, which is, and I'll, I'll let everyone know that this has been my approach in my public classes for two years, which is I don't change my sequences week to week or class to class. I change them about every four to six weeks. So what I do is I, I come up with number one, 
what is it that I want to teach my students? And that always is going to be some technique. That's always going to be some philosophical or existential or spiritual dimension. And that's also going to be some development of pose, right? And I'm going to focus on those three things in more or less the same sequence for somewhere between four and six weeks. Then once that four to six week period is over and students have actually developed greater refinement and depth and skill, then from there, I'm going to shift the sequence to another set of focal points, right? And so where students, or excuse me, where teachers burn themselves out and drive themselves crazy and often are educationally ineffective is when every class or every week they try to do something different, right? So what I want people to imagine, and I'm going to give a couple examples of this. I want you to imagine that you have never played the piano and you want to learn how to play the piano. And you go to a piano class and there's 30 different people in the piano class and you play one song. And then the next time you go to the piano class, you don't play that same song. You play a totally different song. And then the next time you go, you play a different song and so on and so forth. You're not going to get enough repetitions in that to develop skill and actually develop a greater sense of aptitude. All you're going to do is spend the first 40 minutes being confused, right? And so... The example that I give with this, and this is a sort of a a perfect assortment, right? Which is about four months ago, the focal point in all of my classes was anterior abdominal strengthening and all four primary Bokhasana poses. And we did one sequence for four weeks. Most of my students come to class two to three times a week. And that's what we did. And at the beginning of class, every time I told them what we were doing, I told them, reminded them why we were doing it. And then we did that sequence. Can I interrupt for just a sec? Can you offer another example and scale it for beginners? Because she does specifically reference- Let me get get to beginners. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because whether you're teaching beginners, intermediate, experienced, it's the, the, the approach to sequencing is always the same the only thing that's going to be different is the degree of difficulty and the level of sophistication, right? But the process is the same, even more important for beginners. Absolutely. Even more important for beginners, right? So after we worked on that stuff for about a month, then the focal point changed to posterior strength. So strengthening the whole posterior chain of the body. And then working into backbends beyond Urdhvidanyarasana. Because you know, so many teachers, including myself, we stop the backbending part of the practice at Urdhvidanyarasana. You know, we're like a couple of bridges, a couple of Urdhvidanyarasanas, call it a day. But we know Urdhvidanyarasana, like that's just the entrance to a big world of backbends, right? So that second phase of focus was strengthening the back. We had, we had strengthened the front body, and focused on Bakasana-based stuff. Of course, it was a complete balanced practice, but those were the focal points. Then the next round focal point was strengthening the back body and then moving beyond Urdhvidanyarasana. Then the month after that, the focus was strengthening the shoulder girdle and, and developing handstand and forearm balance. That was the focus for a month, right? 
Then now what I'm doing, so now this is like the fourth or fifth month, right? Now what I've been doing is just a big master sequence with all of those focal points, right? That's cool. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I cannot tell you like the number of people that come up to me daily in the sequence are like, now I got it. Mm. Now I can do Parshavakasana. The thing is, is like you can't actually learn hard things by not doing those hard things consistently over time, right? And so we do our students a disservice when we aren't consistent enough because we're focusing on what's different instead of what's consistent. And then we also do ourselves a disservice because we drive ourselves insane. Yeah. And we start to put together, this is the other problem with thinking first about creative sequencing. It's like creative cooking, right? I want to focus first on good cooking. Good food. <laughs> on, right? Yeah. And then also have enough variety, right? Enough creativity and enough variety that it comes together. But I don't want to focus on creativity and variety first, I want to focus on skillful execution of stuff that works first mm -hmm. and then give it a little bit of flavor, right? So what do you say to students who are like, but, 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 but are people going to get bored? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I think this is the biggest single myth, right? And I'm going to pull a card that I hate to pull, right? Which is I'm as commercially successful as any teacher, anyone that's currently teaching, Right. And this is what I do, so it works, right? I mean, this is the thing, whether it's a workshop, whether it's a training, whether it's a series, whether it's a retreat, whether it's these drop-in classes, at the beginning of the day or the week or the weekend or the month or the two-week, whatever it is, I say, these are our learning objectives. This is the primary sequence we're going to do. Then once we have fully adapted this, then we're going to expand on it. And you know what is really inspiring to people? Progress progress, right? People actually want to learn and grow. And here's the thing, not everyone's going to like it, but not everyone's going to like anything that someone does, mm -hmm. right? So there are going to be people that prefer total variety every day or every other day or every week, but I think it's largely unsustainable. And I think that that student base is not actually a very scalable student base anyways, mm. you know? And it's also like, in some ways, right, it's sort of it's sort of throwing me back in some weird way. It's like, so I grew up skateboarding forever and in the punk rock world, right? But I always look like the most straight-laced guy there, like no tattoos, no piercings, you know, whatever. And I always sort of felt like, to some degree, I stood out in the counterculture by being counter <laughs> within that culture. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, the thing is, is like a way to actually be creative is to be consistent and to actually in the in the contemporary vinyasa world especially you will stand out when you are consistent and when you tell people what they're going to learn and why and then you just stay on it right so this is what i focus on a ton right so i got to be honest i really only come up with 12 big themes or 12 big focal points a year mm -hmm. because i i really like to stay with it but again I have really good student retention. I believe a huge part of this retention is that I have a curriculum and that I qualify the value of what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. And I'll say the last thing al along this and then, and then one separate thing and then we'll move on, which is the last thing on this is 
it allows me to really teach what I care about and what I believe in. Because I'm not every week, I'm not like every week thinking, oh, expletive. Yeah. What am I going to do this week? 52 weeks of like some theme and some focus and some flow. I got to tell you, man, when I did that stuff, I was just putting stuff together that I didn't care about, Hmm. that I didn't really think through that much, that I was just like, oh, this goes into this, goes into this, goes into this. Okay, it's different and therefore it is good. Mm -hmm. But man, I just never felt that connected. Now, when I step back with more of a curriculum focus, right, I step back and say, I want this whole year. I want this whole year, whether people are coming or not coming. What I mean by that is whether someone comes every week or someone just drops in whenever. I really believe that every class you teach needs to work in two timescales. One, it needs to work in the current timescale of, it it needs to be a good class. It needs to be a good 60, 75, or 90-minute experience. And two, the second timescale is the long-term, which is, I believe that if I am going to someone else's class regularly, it should not just be countless random 90-minute things, that there should be a buildup and a deepening, right? It's like reading chapters in a book. I want to know that if I come to so-and-so's class for six months, I've enjoyed the classes, but that I've also actually connected some dots, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's where I just, I feel like it's so lacking in the contemporary. I'm just not seeing nearly enough of it. But what I am seeing is extreme burnout because everyone thinks their class has to be different class to class to week to week to week. Yeah. Now, when it comes to beginners, do I have a curriculum? Yes, I do. And I just filmed, I don't know when it's going to release, but I just filmed a a training with Yoga Glow, like the sequencing program I have and the arm balances program I have. I just filmed a how to teach beginners course and I am stoked on it. And so not only is it a how to teach beginners course, but there is a four week curriculum for teaching that you learn and you practice and then you can teach as a series. So this is really like the first big curriculum program that I'm rolling out. I think we're lucky that we had to re-record this because I don't think you had recorded no, no, I don't no, no, think you right. had done you're that right. program when we first recorded it. So is there a target release date no, for that? No, no, okay. No. We filmed so it guys, not so long ago. if you want to um know about that release date, just sign up for our newsletter and yep. you can sign up from our homepage. Just go to jasonyoga.com and you yep. can find out there's a yep. box. Yeah. So step back, slow down, find couple of focal points that you really want to teach. And then, you know, this conversation, we can't get into all the dynamics sequencing, but focus on things that work and focus on teaching and focus on consistency. I'll say one more thing, which is I apply, especially for beginners, about an 80-20 rule, which is at very least class to class, 80% is the same and 20% is different. Because what this builds is, this builds skill, this builds confidence, this builds comfort, right? Having that 80% consistency and then that 20% that's different from class to class. That's where we start to keep things alive and different. Can I just tell you how much I wish I could still come to your class? Yeah, you can tell me. 
Someday. <laughs> Someday. Someday, maybe when Sophia comes with me. Yeah. I can come back. Next question is from Amy. Amy says, I have many students who struggle with the breath while in class, be it choppy, breathing, panting, yawning, or holding of the breath. I've tried addressing this in so many ways, from individually saying something to group class cues and to practicing pranayama in class as part of our opening. Any tips for helping students, quote unquote, get it? Yeah. So that's a couple things. Number one, which is let's just acknowledge that it's hard to get. Like, it's just hard to get. It's more subtle, right? The last conversation we had, which was, I think, we talked about spirituality or yes. overt spirituality, mm -hmm. right? We, we talked about a lot of texts. Yes. And we briefly touched on Patanjali, right? And if we just sort of step back, asana precedes pranayama because it's much easier to teach the gross than the subtle. Yes. So we see really in Patanjali's hierarchy, he, it's just a movement from the gross to the subtle. It's a movement of understanding, restraining, and accessing the gross world to the subtle, deeply refined world, right? So it's easier to teach Warrior Two than it is to, to teach people to breathe in Warrior Two. It's easier to teach downward facing dog, and it's easier to do downward facing dog than to focus on your breath while doing downward facing dog. So that is the first thing. I am 20 years into teaching, and this is still a challenge for me every class I teach. Hmm. And there's always going to be some phases where I'm in that room and I am teaching people to breathe and I don't see it. I don't hear it to this day, right? So that's just a component of it, which is to remember this is subtle. And I think uh, the second layer to this, which is people have to get what they're going to get through their own process of discovery. Yeah. As teachers, we do expedite understanding and experience, but you can't expedite all understandings and all experiences. And so you just have to be, as a teacher, you have to be consistent, but really patient that a lot of students for a long time are going to, it's just going to take a while to access all this. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. I mean, I think that's really actually kind of a, might be a relief to hear because uh, I think totally. as a teacher, you just, I have the same issue. You know, it's like if I teach anyone anything and they don't get it, I feel like, what am I doing wrong? You right. know, what am I not what am I not conveying in a, in a, how can I do this in a more articulate way? And what you're saying is they're probably absorbing it. And one day it might just click. Yeah. But they're just learning at their own pace. They're learning at their own pace, yeah. you know, and they're adults. They got a lot of things going on, hmm. you know, they got a lot of things going on. And this is sort of a, you know, to piggyback on that last question, this is a reason that consistency is so important with any dimension of this practice because it takes a really long time to learn, especially as an adult, right? Like 
it takes longer and greater repetition as an adult to acquire information and understanding, right? The other thing to think about along these lines is when we're teaching breathing, what you have to remember is you're not teaching people to do something they've never done. You're teaching them to do something that they have done millions of times. Hmm. People have ta- have breathed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However to say this, you're the editor. You said it right. <laughs> okay. People have breathed. Not breathed. Breathed. <laughs> millions of times. Yeah. And breathing is a profoundly complex neuromuscular chemical event. And so it is unbelievably, it's a very deep samskara, how people are breathing. So it's not even like you're teaching someone to draw that's never drawn. And so you're you're starting, you know, on sort of a relatively blank slate. You're reformulating something that has been formatted since the moment that that person stepped into this world, Mm -hmm. you know? So it just takes forever. You know, it just takes forever. And it's so much patience. Now, there are a couple of quick technical things. Number one, I don't know the pace that Amy's teaching, but I'll say one of the bigger ironies, I don't know if it's ironies, one of the things that I struggle with in contemporary yoga world is pace of movement is ludicrously untenable. It's actually doing this ridiculous disservice, okay? Because the pace of, well, let me put it like this. Movement in vinyasa yoga is a method to get you to breathe at a specific pace. So if you are moving fast, you're going to be breathing faster. So this sort of contemporary, I give the the example all the time, inhale and then on the exhale, step the foot forward, right? Inhale and on the exhale, step the foot forward. What? I, I didn't have time to inhale. I love how incensed you get. I didn't have time to exhale. <laughs> and you want me to do what? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the thing is, is like there are physical disciplines in which quickness is a virtue. Sure. But those disciplines are not trying to coordinate that movement with ujjayi breath. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like- so this is the thing. This is, I think that a lot of the pace of contemporary vinyasa yoga is totally undermining the capacity to be a good breather, you know? I, I have it, to agree. And yeah. I will say this, right? I'll stand on it too, which is also going fast is a really good way to not be strong or not be skillful. It's a really good way to not pay attention. It's a really good way to not which pay attention. Which is why we move so fast. And I am, you know, like, we are modern people. We love to totally. move fast. We love to, like, pack our days with lots of stuff. And- you know what infuriates me? When people stand on moving walkways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I literally, I liter- you know what I think? I like standing on moving I think that this yeah. person, I think that this person, there's something wrong with them. <laughs> like, from a deep, deep, deep human perspective. And then I realize I'm, and then I realize there's something wrong with me, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But my point is, is like, right, we like to move fast, but. And we know how hard it is to slow down. And there are things in my life where I train myself to go really, really, really fast. Mm-hmm. But while I'm doing that fast thing, my priority is not deep breathing. Mm-hmm. My priority is moving fast. You can't have both. You can breathe well and move fast. But you can't breathe slowly, smoothly, and deeply with ujjayi breath and go at this pace 
that people are trying to go in contemporary vinyasa practice. And then the, the other thing about this is like, I see this all the time with my students who aren't really consistent students or they're new students to mine. They're trying to go real fast. And then midway through class, they can't keep up. Hmm. They can't keep up because we've gone, we've gone to a place where they're working so hard because they're holding things, they're doing slow transitions, they're lengthening their breath. They're not just essentially doing the equivalent of like a 50-yard dash. Mm-hmm. So this, I'm not saying that this is the situation with Amy. I have no idea. But I will say that, and again, I don't want people to say like, oh, well, Jason can do it. Like somehow I've been divine with the ability to have a student base and not rush. Hmm. I have a student base in part because I don't rush. Mm-hmm. I have a student base because I do clarify our teaching objectives, because I am consistent with our sequencing, because I do want to really focus on efficiency and effectiveness. And I believe that when students get that, they get it. And that that, that isn't how other people are doing it. And, and you get a little lost in the mix. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. This just I know we're, we're taking a lot That's of time okay. on this question, but it just reminds me of something. So I just did an interview with Jay Brown. Uh-huh. It will have already run by the time we, I run this. And before the interview, I read you know as many of his blog posts as I could. And his writing is so great. And it's kind of sweet because he's very like humble about his writing. And I had pulled out a bunch of passages, and one of which I read on the show. And then afterward, I emailed them to him. And I was like, just use these for your Instagram posts. Like... They're already written. Oh, right. You know, right, like right, they're right, already, right, you've right. already done all this work. Yeah. And so he put one of them up. And the sweetest thing is he actually thanked me for mm-hmm. finding it, which I thought was like, you're the one who said it. Right, 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 right. But anyway, what the, the gist of what he said was, it, which is just another way of saying what you basically just said is, we sometimes, as yoga teachers, we feel this need to give people what they want. And they come in and they're rushed and they're distracted and they want you know, to work hard and they want it to be sort of a workout. And they also want to go internal and they also want to focus their mind and they also want to balance chira and stuka. And like we try to give them what they want and so it speeds up. Exactly. But he's like, we're not really actually giving them what they need. No. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. It's like, I want to make it clear that I teach a demanding class, you know, like that, that's the style that I teach. It's technical. I think it's refined. I think it's as safe as, you know, we can be, Uh, but it's demanding. It's a hard class. Right. And I don't make it hard by going really fast and doing unsound, untenable combinations. Mm -hmm. And actually I think people really get that distinction. And when you are when you fall into a pace where you're working hard and consistently, but there is this consistent metronome-like rhythm to the movement, it's so satisfying. You don't want something else. Like you don't want to be in a situation where you're being harried along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. You're very good at the measured pace. And I, I mean, and you do it with on, my daughter. On my inside, it's not always measured. <laughs> Get out of here. Oh, go on. <laughs> oh, go on. I would have never known. How many times did you see me throw the pen earlier? <laughs> <laughs> I can't blame you for that. You were dealing with technical yes. issues. Okay, next question is from Angelique. How do you breathe in backbends, especially Danyarasana or Ordva Danyarasana? Can I pause? Yes. I don't breathe in either of those poses. <laughs> you just hold your breath <laughs> I just and, hold and breath. cross your fingers and toes. Uh, yeah, I just <laughs> hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. I usually, as a result, I usually black out. <laughs> that's okay too. But I find that's better. Because then the next couple of days, I'm like, why is all this pain? But I don't remember it. <laughs> no, I have advice. It doesn't feel natural to breathe with your lungs not being able to inflate. Yes. And having difficulties in breathing messes with my mind. That's my ability <laughs> to hold the posture. Yeah. Thanks for We don't want to mess with your mind. A thousand hearts to yoga land. Okay. Thanks for the question, Angelique. So one of the things to communicate, and you know, I think I've said this a couple of times, but I have learned so much from so many people that it's impossible to like constantly cite sources and references. But my understanding of breathing was so influenced even just by a really, by like one chapter in Leslie Kamenoff's book. Where in Yoga Anatomy, where he writes about the diaphragm as the engine of respiration, right? And I mean, I've learned tons about breathing from Rodney and Richard and doing Ashtanga and all these things. But in terms of the conceptual understanding of this, so I want to cite that source, you know. And it's also, it's interesting to me how, you know, there are people that have had really strong influences on me who I've spent a lot of time with. And there's also some people that have had strong influences on some aspect or yeah. another that has had like, I've had a moment with them. It's, mm -hmm. it's actually a pretty amazing thing, actually, yeah, right? Yeah, it's kind of a neat That thing. life is kind of like this, yeah. right? So I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to butcher and get anything that he writes about wrong, but, it, but just the sentiment, which is this, right? Which is that in order for respiration to occur, your thoracic volume needs to be able to continue to change, meaning the rib cage needs to be able to expand and recoil. And to some degree, the spine has to have some axial lengthening and then shortening. So in order for the body to take an inhalation, the rib cage needs to be, ex be able to expand. That's what actually creates the inhalation. And in order to exhale, the circumference of the rib cage needs to be able to narrow, that the thoracic volume needs to be able to decrease. Because really what breathing is, is uh, a phenomenon of exchange between our body and the air pressure that we're encased in. It's, it's all about pressure differentials, right? So if you are in a deep backbend, you have already tensioned and expanded the system to such a degree then it's very difficult to expand it even more. And then similarly, if you're in a deep backbend, right? Let's say you're in e even just Urdhva In Urdhva not only is it difficult to inhale because, it's, because the system is actually so tensioned already, it's difficult to expand more, but also that shape is tensioning you so much it's very difficult to decrease the thoracic volume, right? So essentially, in some positions, it's much easier than in other positions for your diaphragm and your spine and your ribs to do what they need to be able to do. Is this making sense so far? Yes, totally. Okay. So here's the point. Breathing in Urdhva Dhanurasana is always going to be hard. Breathing in Dhanurasana is always going to be hard. It shouldn't be extreme, but if it is, but if those are difficult poses for you, it's going to be difficult to breathe in those poses. Mm -hmm. There's just there's actually no way around it. The little bit of insight I have, other than that, what I take from that understanding, 
What I find, let's say Dhanurasana, for example, which is even for me harder to breathe in. It's a harder pose. I don't try to take long breaths. I try to take wide breaths. Okay. So instead of, instead of sort of on the inhale, feeling like the breath draws down into the core, I, on the in-breath, breathe out into the sides of the armpits. Because especially when you're face down, when you're in Dhanurasana, not only is it difficult to change the thoracic volume, it's really difficult to change the abdominal volume because your abdominal region is compressed. It's, it's pressing into the ground, right? And so I always sort of ask myself, where do I have room to breathe? I can't breathe into my belly here. I can't try to breathe into my belly here. It's totally squished. Is, so where is there space? I, where I find space is the sides of the chest. So in, in backbends, I focus on breathing more into the sides of the chest. I've actually always found the instruction to breathe, you know, horizontally and like to the width yeah. to be very soothing. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's just, it's more of a visual than yeah. um, an actuality. So it's like, it, there's less uh, anxiety associated with it mm. of like, I have to do this now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. Where is there space? I'm trying to get this. I'm trying to add something to the equation. Mm -hmm. Where is there space to add to the equation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last question is from Maria. And actually, she, she responded to Angelique. So she says, to piggyback on Angelique, could you tell us your philosophy on breathing during dropbacks, particularly on coming back up from uh, back up to standing from yes. the back bend. Yeah. So here's another situation where my advice is just don't breathe. <laughs> just hold that breath. So dropbacks are hard. <laughs> They're hard. The harder the thing, the harder it is to breathe in that thing. And the harder the thing, the harder it is to be skillful and refined in that thing. So this is a really good question, but I would just want to start with the reminder that it's hard, mm -hmm. okay? What I think, the first thing that I think about this is pace of breath, okay? So I think about dropping back into Urdhva Dhanurasana, the pace, I think about the pace of the breath when you drop back from Tadasana to Urdhva Dhanurasana as the same as when you go from Hastasana or Urdhva Hastasana, right? That you're in Tadasana, you so inhale, reach the arms up mm -hmm. to exhale coming into Uttanasana. Mm -hmm. So I think about the movement from Tadasana to Uttanasana and the movement to ta from Tadasana to drop back as the same thing it's just it's just the reverse of that thing. Yes, I'm now remembering the first time we had this conversation. Yeah. How hilarious I thought it was because the way you posed it the first time you said it was when we were at Love Stories. You said something like dropping back to Ordhvadhanurasana from standing from Tadasana mountain pose is really the same thing as going from Tadasana to you know I'm going to use the English. People prefer the English. It's really the same thing as going from mountain pose to a standing forward bend. It's just in reverse. It is. <laughs> I was like, when do you think of these things? And do you remember what you said? No. You said like, you know all those times. At 3 a.m. No, you said, you know all those times when you're talking to me <laughs> <laughs> and you say. That came out of my mouth? 
Yes. Man. It was a good insight. Okay. It's he said it was I think about these things during all those times you're talking to me, but and you look at me and say, Are you listening? <laughs> and I'm not listening. I'm thinking of things like this. Yeah, I'm trying to sort this out. Yeah. So I say this to my students all the time. It's the same thing. It's just reverse. And it's endlessly harder. Mm-hmm. It's the, but but it's largely the same thing. It really is largely the same thing. Okay. It's just way harder. Mm-hmm. You're just going forward <laughs> or you're going backwards, mm-hmm. right? You're going forward over an axis or you're going backwards over it. So that's just this is think about it in terms of breath rate. So I want the exhalation from Tadasana to Uttanasana, from, from mountain pose to a standing forward bend, I want the exhalation to be long and slow and deep. And it's the same thing when you are dropping back. So the time it takes you to exhale from a standing forward bend to a forward fold should be about the same amount of time that it takes you to exhale from a from Tadasana to Urdhva Got it. So that's the pace. And here's the thing, which is if you do it faster than that pace, you're rushing. If you do it slower than that pace, you're suffering because it's so hard to inhale halfway into a drop back. You, you're not going to inhale. You're just not. Now, I should I should change that. People that are unbelievably skillful, deep backbenders are going to be able to do that. Okay. There are going to be some people that can drop themselves back. They can sort of slowly float down backwards and sort of take a couple breaths. My recommendation for most people is it's a nice deep in-breath in mountain pose. And then it's the duration of one long exhalation when you go all the way back. Make sense? And this is an assisted drop back. It's assisted or unassisted. Okay. Okay. I'd say it's the same thing. Mm, Okay. Yeah. If it's unassisted and you're first learning it, it's probably a little bit slower, but... In, in which case, then you're going to just just try to survive. You know what I mean? Just take as many in-breaths as you go along. But partially dropped back is a very difficult place to be. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's very difficult to breathe in very difficult places to be. So it's preferable to inhale, long, slow, deep exhalation, go. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think there's rhythm and timing to it. That's actually valuable. I think it's part of the reason to drop back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Full disclosure, I can only drop back with the help of like seven people and 12 Indian elephants and EMT on call. <laughs> 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 no, I can drop back with someone that can drop someone back. So yeah. I'm fine. Uh, yeah. So that's that. Now, when to come up, same thing. Big actions usually on the exhalation. Because on big actions, you ain't inhaling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there is no way mm-hmm. that you are going to inhale while standing up, right? You can inhale coming into Urdhva though I don't. Let me put it like this. You can inhale into up dog. Mm-hmm. You can inhale into cobra. Mm-hmm. You can inhale into locust. Those are easy poses. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, those are relatively easy poses. I don't see anyone inhaling all the way up from Urdhva Dhanurasana. So it's that big, deep in-breath and then the exhale to come up. Okay. Yep. Yep. We got it. We got there. (laughs) We answered the question. Maria, 
You're going to take a big, deep inhale in your wheel pose, and then you're going to exhale as you That's come right. up. That's right. All right. You can also, just for the record, inhale when you go into a forward bend, exhale when you go into a forward bend. See what happens. Inhale when you go into a back bend, exhale when you go into a back bend. See what happens. You know what I mean? Like this is a self-inquiry based practice. I think, you're, I think you get struck by lightning when, when you do that. Well, your chakras, you know what happens to your chakras. <laughs> I don't even want to know. They invert and they reverse. <gasps> the Brahmanarandra goes to the Mula. And they just start spinning Stop showing up your the wrong scourge. direction. Next time we do the interview, I would like you to wear the new headphones I got you. They are behind you. Oh, these? Yes. They look good. <laughs> They're like, uh, it's like we take our daughter to the, the gun range. It's they're kinda... hot pink and they're preschool. Oh, beautiful. I'm going to take a picture of you for everyone and you can, uh, you can, you'll see it soon. All right. Thanks, Jason. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have questions that you want me to add to our list when we do these Q and A's, you can email them to support at Jason Yoga and I will add them to the file. And also I have been thinking about doing... I mean, Jason would probably just faint if I told him this because it's not like the guy doesn't have enough work to begin with. But I have thought about doing a separate either podcast or once a week having an Ask Jason session in addition to the regular episode. So if you are interested in that, you can let me know. Okay, until next week, enjoy your practice.